church, a whole bunch of you just switched off. Uh, that maybe because of some past hurt at a previous church where uh, a pastor or someone on staff uh, abused their authority or stories you've heard at different churches, you sort of have this mindset that all churches want is our money. That, that's all we're after. Um, and, and look, I'll be the first to admit it. Churches have done a whole lot of hurt when it comes to this whole issue of money. So that gut response is completely understandable. And so right at the outset of tonight's message, I'm going to clear up a couple of things. So firstly, there is no special offering at the end of tonight's message. Uh, I'm not going to be passing around a plate at the end of the sermon. There's no building drive attached to this. I'm just going to be preaching the word to you. And the reason I actually need to talk about money tonight is because, well, here in the evening service, we're sort of working our way through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so last week, we got to talk about prayer. The week before that, we got to talk about evangelism. And tonight, we get to talk about generosity because, well, that's just what the text is about. And look, the fact of the matter is the Bible actually talks a lot about money. Uh, in 1973, Howard Dayton, a businessman from Florida, he actually sat down with the task of indexing every single verse in the Bible that has to do with money. Uh, and after many, many months of going through the Bible, he categorized these verses into topics like debt, honesty, giving, earnings, saving, budgeting, contentment, and a whole bunch more. And he ended up with a list of verses that was 2,350 verses long. 2,350 verses in the Bible that teach us and instruct us about money, how to use it, what it's for, and what it does to the human soul. That the Bible talks a lot about money. And to put that into context, there are only 500 verses in the Bible that talk about prayer. So make from that what you will. Um, but look, if you just want to focus on the New Testament, let's just see what Jesus did as well. 15% uh, of his preaching material covered money. Uh, 11 out of 39 of his parables were about money, that Jesus talked more about money than he talked about heaven and hell combined. And so what that means is if we just read through the scriptures and allow it to teach us and instruct us in the ways we, we should go, we are going to get to points in the Bible where it just flat out talks about money. And the reason I think the Bible has to talk so much about money is because it is the, the easiest thing in this life that we can take a hold of and put in God's place in our life. That we, if we need comfort in, in a situation, we can just as easily find that comfort in how many zeros there are at the end of our bank account as we can in the works and person of Jesus. If we are stuck in what feels like an impossible situation, it's just as easy to go running to our bank and to take a loan and to try to let money solve the problems as it is to go running to God in prayer. That sure, we all know money can't buy your happiness, but it can buy you a boat or a car or a house or a holiday trip to Fiji, that at least on the surface, money can do a whole lot of things that God, that only God is supposed to be able to do. And so look, again, tonight, I'm going to be frank, I'm talking about money. I'm talking about generosity. I'm talking about tithing. And if that upsets you, well... You're here and you can't leave now because we'll all know exactly why you're leaving. Uh, <laughs> okay, that being said, let me give a couple outs right from the start of tonight's message. So if you are a guest here tonight, and we know who you are because the moment I mentioned money, the person who invited you slumped down in their chair and started muttering to themselves, um, look, we are glad you are here. 
We would love to help you get connected into life at Kenmore. And I do, I honestly think God's heart for you is a life of radical generosity. But there are going to be parts of tonight's message that are sort of like a family chat. And you are our guest here tonight. And so if there are parts of the message to cover topics like tithing well, we don't expect guests to pay the electricity bills. So you can just relax through those parts. Secondly, if you are here tonight and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, uh, maybe you're sort of just checking out this whole Jesus thing. Well, let me tell you, Jesus sort of is like a library book. There's no fee, there's no charge to check him out. So uh, you can come, you can just listen to this message and look, to warn you, I'm going to give you an opportunity to give your life to Jesus. Uh, There's just no monetary charge attached to that. And finally, to the rest of us that call Kemble Church your home, let me just say, you guys are awesome at this. That when it comes to generosity, when it comes to uh, giving, you guys are doing really, really well. Our budget is up to scratch. We've got enough funds to run some really awesome ministries to keep a whole bunch of us here on staff. Uh, And not just offerings. Um, I think we as a church give away a crazy amount of money to things like Compassion Kids every year. Uh, You guys open up your homes and your lives to each other that when you consider everything that goes into keeping this church alive, you all are really, really generous. So don't take this message as a slap on the wrist, but let it serve as an encouragement for what you are already doing and motivation to keep on doing it. All right. With that said, are we ready to jump into some Bible tonight? See, it's a lot easier now that I've relieved all your fears, right? Uh, All right. If you've got your Bible with you, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And Set in the context where we're jumping into things, we're in the, the second of three summary sections within the book of Acts. Uh, so Luke, the author of Acts, is sort of stepping away from specific events around specific people, and he's giving us a bit of a movie montage moment. All right, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they held everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and a great grace was upon them all. All right, so what Luke is telling us here is that this whole early church thing, it is going really well. That what started off as 120 believers in the upper room at Pentecost has exploded to over 5,000 believers in a matter of weeks. And what we're seeing is that this community has been completely transformed by the gospel. That people are hearing the good news of Jesus, that they are hearing the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And as a result of that story, their lives are being transformed, eternities are being changed, and just the way people do life is radically different. So much so that we're told they're of one heart and soul, that they share everything in common, that there's this grace that just rests upon everything they do that compared to the the greed and the selfish ambition of the Greco-Roman world around them, this early church had come together and formed something that was brand new. And look, let me be clear that they haven't formed a commune. This isn't like an early form of communism. Uh, we, We know both from this verse itself and other places in the book of Acts that they still actually have possessions. Uh, But but what is happening here is in response to the gospel and just with this overwhelming sense of gratitude, those that have more are willing to give up some of their resources for those that have less. And this is happening so often and in such a consistent way that, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them 
and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. See, church, this early community, it was shaped by the gospel. It was formed by the gospel that because of what Jesus had done in people's lives, they could not help but respond in generosity to those around them. And look, this really is the entire point of my message tonight and something I really want to drive home, that the natural response to the gospel is a life of radical generosity. That when you hear the gospel, And I don't just mean pass the sound waves, but actually sit down and process what it means deep down at a soul level. It changes everything about everything about everything. And it leads naturally, so not in a forced way, not in an artificial way, to a life that is radically generous. And so look, I I think I would be remiss in this moment if I did not stop and take an opportunity to declare that gospel to you. And look, the gospel really begins with an understanding of our own brokenness, that there is something inside each and every one of us that is desperately wrong, that despite the fact that we were made for a perfect and uninterrupted relationship with the God of the universe, there is something inside of us that actually separates us from his presence, that all of us, by both nature and nurture, we are sinners, that we aren't just bad people who need to do better. We aren't people who make a whole bunch of mistakes that need a life coach or a guru. We are sinners who need a savior. That that sin separates us from the presence of God. The way Jesus would put it is, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That again, the issue is not that we make mistakes, it's not that we lie, it's not that we steal or cheat or or hurt those around us or are prideful or are greedy. The issue is that we are sinners. That we aren't sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. That no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, even one. And if you don't believe me, then let me just ask you, do you ever do something you just know you shouldn't do? That you've promised yourself you would never do again, you would never go there again, you would never eat that again or drink that again or watch that again or hang out with that person again, whatever that thing is for you. And despite the fact you know it's wrong, despite the fact that you know it is killing you, you just can't help yourself. That is sin in your life. And so look, because God is holy and just and righteous, that sin, it does, it separates us from his presence. Because God could not ignore our brokenness and still remain a holy God. He could not just excuse our sin and remain a just God. And so what God does is in the most generous moment in all of eternity, he chooses to do something about it. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. That God, out of his own good pleasure and an overflowing abundance of generosity, steps down from the throne of heaven and he takes on human form. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and he lived this perfect human life. This life that you and I are supposed to live but, but are unable to live because of our brokenness. And despite that, one night, they arrest him. One night, they beat him. And they mock him, 
They falsely accuse him. They throw him in jail. They, they take a crown of thorns and they slam it into his breast. That they whip him to within an inch of his life and then they make him carry the instrument of his own torture across town before nailing him on a tree to die. And at any point in that process, Jesus could have stopped all of it. He could have commanded legions of army angels to step down and smite the Romans. He could have denied Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin the right to actually sentence him. He could have stopped all of it at any second along the way, but out of the generosity of our Savior, he instead chose nails piercing through his hands and his feet. That out of the generosity of our Savior, he chose a shameful death on the cross that only our brokenness deserved. That out of the generosity of Jesus Christ, the God of the universe went to the cross and poured out his blood for our sake. And on that cross, Jesus covered our sin. He washed away that, that brokenness inside of us, that, that, that separated us from God's presence, and he allowed us back into a relationship with the God who made us. Not because of anything we've done, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but simply because God is a generous God who chases down his rebellious people. The way Paul would put it is, for you know the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might also become rich. And see, church, when you grasp that, when you, you understand that the breadth and width of the gospel, something clicks over. Like deep down at the soul level, something changes when you realize the enormity of what God has done to save a sinner like you and me. And so when the God of the universe gives his everything for you, well, selling a house or some land for someone in need, that's not really even a comparison. That when you, when you compare the, the, the precious cost of the blood of Jesus Christ, when you compare that to giving up a little bit of your income to help someone else in need, well, it's almost insignificant. And so what we need to understand before we talk about any specifics about money or generosity or tithing is that generosity is not rooted in our bank accounts. It's not rooted in our personality type or our spiritual gifting. It is rooted solely in the foot of the cross. That we don't give because we are good people. We don't give because we have enough to go around. We don't give because we are obliged to do so. We give because God gave first. That again, the natural response to the gospel, it is a life of radical generosity. And so my goal for tonight then is not that I would stir you to respond generously to this message, but that I would expose the gospel to you and you would respond to the gospel with a life that is radically generous. Does that sound good, church? Awesome. All right, jumping back into our story, verse 36 Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles, apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite and a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, so Luke, the author of Acts, he ends his little montage scene talking about the church in general, and then he zooms in to give us the specific example of Barnabas, who lives out an example of radical generosity. And look, if you've read uh, Acts before, you'll actually know that Barnabas is a pretty big deal when it comes to the early church. 
uh, that Barnabas is the one who vouches for Paul when he has his, act, uh, his moment of radical conversion to Christianity. Uh, Barnabas actually joins Paul for a whole bunch of his missionary journeys. Uh, they sort of have a disagreement at one point and they go their separate ways. But the fact of the matter is that from this point on, Barnabas becomes a really big deal in the early church. And time and time again, what we see about Barnabas is he is described as this really good guy, that he has a reputation for encouragement, for genuineness, and for a goodness of heart. So much so that later in the book of Acts, uh, Luke would write about Barnabas that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord because of him. Which if you're going to have a verse in the Bible that describes you, that's probably a pretty good one to have. But um, look, Barnabas sells off this property, he sells off a piece of land, and he raises some funds from that, and then he brings that into the apostles' feet, the church, and he brings it in as an offering to the church. Verse 5, but a man named Ananias, and you've got to pay attention to buts in the Bible, conjunction words are really, really important, because Luke is saying, hey, that story about Barnabas I just told you, what I need you to do is compare it to what I'm about to tell you, because the difference is going to reveal something really important. Uh, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, so we've got this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and Ananias, and what I think is happening is they actually look at what Barnabas has done. They see the radical generosity of one man, and more importantly, I think they see what it does to his reputation. And they sort of want in on that. See, and this is just me, not the Bible, so take from it what you will. I think Ananias and Sapphira, they're at church when Barnabas comes in with that donation. And they're sitting there and they see him put the money bag down at the feet of the apostles. And then they see the look of shock and awe on the apostles' faces. They realize just how much money has been brought in and how radically generous Barnabas has just been. And then in the weeks and months preceding that, they see how his... Um, importance within the early church rises again and again. And what they don't realize is that it's Barnabas's character and not his checkbook that is actually making the difference, but they sort of put two and two together and say, well, maybe if we just sell off one of our properties, we can have the same sort of influence that Barnabas does. Or maybe, and again, this is just maybe, maybe they see how much Barnabas brings in and they go, well, we'll just top that by a little bit. We'll just look a little bit better than they do. And so that's what they do. They, they go out, they sell some property, and evidently they make a lot more than they need. Uh, so they go like, well, we don't need to give all of it to the church, just, just enough to beat Barnabas. And they pocket the rest, and they come into church one day, and they're probably acting all humble, and they, they walk forward, and they do the same thing Barnabas did, and they lay it down at the apostles' feet. And instead of Peter turning to them and giving them praise and acknowledgement for what they have just done, Peter turns to them and says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds for the land? Not why did Satan fill your wallet? Not why did Satan fill your bank account? Why did Satan fill your heart? And you need to take that line really carefully because that word fill is just used a couple of verses earlier to describe how the Holy Spirit is filling people's hearts. See, church, what we need to understand is that money or giving is not a money issue. It's a heart issue. 
Or to put it another way, it's a worship issue. See, the way we live our lives in response to the gospel, it is our worship. And that doesn't just mean the songs we sing, it means the lives that we lead. That worship to God, it includes our bank account and it includes our wallets. That's why Jesus would say things like, where your treasure is, there your heart also will be. That money is not a money issue. It's a heart issue. And what it actually reveals to us is who is Lord of your life, who sits on the throne of your heart. That Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other, for you cannot serve both God and money. And what has been revealed to us in this moment is that Ananias and Sapphira, well, they are lords of their own lives. That instead of responding to the gospel in generosity, they are responding to their own desires for power, acknowledgement, and position. And so Peter turns to, this, uh, to Ananias and he says, Ananias, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? For you have not lied to man, but you have to God. In other words, Peter turns to Ananias and is like, Ananias, what have you done? I mean, it was your property, right? No one asked you to sell it. No one, no one forced you into that. And, and God is not against you owning property. God is not against us having material possessions. So Ananias, if you had just kept that for yourself, that would have been fine. And look, if you chose to sell it, awesome. God would have blessed that generosity. He would have honored that act of, of obedience and offering. In fact, if you had come in here, Ananias, and you had just told us that you were bringing in 50% of the proceeds from the sale, well, that would have been fine as well. But see, the problem is you have come in here with this heart that is you have allowed Satan to fill and you have told us that you sold the property and have given us all of the proceeds. That he turns to Ananias and says, you have tried to lie to God. Church, that terrifies me. <laughs> and what terrifies me even more is that for us today, we, we can do very similar things. And we don't have like that word of knowledge all the time like Peter had in this situation to reveal where our hearts are at. That for us today, for most, of the, for most of the time, it is entirely a thing that is between you and God. See, from the outside, it looks like Ananias has done all the right things, right? He sold it for a property. He's been super generous and sacrificial. He, he came in and he gave this massive offering to church. Like he's ticking all the boxes. So on the outside, he looks amazing. But inside, everything is out of whack. And look, again, the same can be true for us today. And if I can switch this across to a different area of our lives, if I just talk about worship, the act of singing songs in church and at home, you can come in here and you can be raising your hands to God during worship. And maybe you're doing that because you just love Jesus and you cannot contain yourself and you just want to praise the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is why you're raising your hands. But maybe you're raising your hands because you know the exact point in the song where you're supposed to raise your hands. And let's just be honest, they, they make the songs to make that point really clear. It's like the third repeat of the bridge and it's all building up and you're like, okay, now's the moment. Thank, thanks for the worship team for laughing at that. Um, <laughs> no, but, but maybe you're just doing that because you want everyone to think you're worshiping God. 
because you want everyone to feel like you are holy and you love God. And from up here on the stage, I cannot tell the difference. It all looks like you love Jesus. And I don't want to stand up here throwing eggs at you guys because this hits me just as hard as it would you. But why is it that you do the things you do? I mean, why do you rock up to church every Sunday? Is it because it's just what you do? Is it because it's what your parents did? Or is it because you actually want to come and encounter the living God? And why do you worship? Is it because you have to and everyone around you is doing it? Is it because you like the songs we sing? Or is it because you want to praise Jesus? And if we go back to money, why do you tithe? Why do you give offerings? Is it just a legalistic rule? that has been burned into your mind? Are you trying to twist God's arm like Ananias and Sapphira were? Or are you trying to give back to God because he has given everything to you? See, church, at the end of the day, God does not need your worship. He doesn't need your time on a Sunday. And he definitely doesn't need your money. God is not sitting in heaven right now going, well, if Liam just gave an extra 20 bucks in his offering this week, then I could move in a powerful way. No. God's got the cattle on a thousand hills. He has choirs of angels singing his praises. He has time in all eternity, past, present, and future. He doesn't need that. But he wants our heart. And so look, if you are here and the the opposition you have to this message is, it's a message about generosity and all the church ever wants is your money, then let me just give you an out right here and now. Don't. Seriously. If your opposition to a message about generosity is the church just wants your hard-earned cash, then then don't give us your money. We do not need it. God does not need it. But please, please, please give somewhere. Be generous somewhere. Pick pick a charity that you know is Christian-run and that you trust and that is open with with um, where the money goes and they're transparent or or find a Christian that you know is generous and and savvy with their money and go to them and say, hey, I've got this money I need to give somewhere. Can you help me find places to do it? Because again, God does not need your money, but he wants your priority. That God is first. He went first. He goes first. He is preeminent and above all things. But so often we can get caught up in the, the things of this world, the busyness of our lives and our own religiosity that we actually need to stop and remind ourselves that he is first. See, the reason I encourage people when I have the chance to chat with them through it, to encourage them to do things like give and tithe, it's not because it's a legalistic thing we have to do. There's no God tax in order to be a Christian. But see, in order for us to tithe, we actually have to give first. That the word tithe itself, it literally just means 10%. That's what the word means. And Uh, It it does literally mean giving 10% of your income. But throughout the the story of the Bible, it is also associated with this idea of giving first. See, what you are doing when you tithe is, is money comes into your bank account, and you look at that money, and then you turn to God and say, hey, God, all of this money, it's yours. I didn't really, like, you have given to this to me. This is a blessing from you. And and what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn back to you and give you it's the first portion of it because you are first in my life. That before I look at my bills or my debt or or my rent payment due this month, before I work out if I can pay for my groceries or my water bill, I look at you, God. I give you first. 
And when you do that, church, it puts your heart back in the right position. Or more, more specifically, it actually puts God back on the throne of your life. And so, verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came on all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. All right, I'm not going to lie, this is pretty somber, it's pretty intense, and Thankfully, I'm not expecting anyone to drop over dead in the service because uh, they, they haven't been giving their offerings in the right way or their heart's in the wrong position. I'm not expecting to have to call the, the youth pastors to carry anyone out, but it would make for a really good sermon point, I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> uh, no, see, what I think is happening here is in this moment, God is actually establishing his church. And he is setting the bar really high when it comes to matters of the heart. I actually think it's the same reason that God starts striking down people in, in the book of Corinthians when they're not doing, tithe, uh, not doing communion properly, uh, that God is sort of saying, hey, these things, communion, giving, offering, all that sort of stuff, it's really important. Not that the act itself is important, is above all things. It, it is important, but it's not the most important thing. What God is saying is it is so important where your heart is when you are doing these things. And so he says, look, from the outset, this is really important. And I'm going to treat it important. And if you don't, there will be consequences. And so then what happens is Ananias' wife is about to walk in and we're going to get a repeat of the same scene. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So he's giving her an opportunity to repent and confess their sins and Instead, she says, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And again, the youth leaders, they come in, they find her dead and they carry her out and bury her besides her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. That a great fear came upon all the church. So look, as we finish out this message tonight, and the band can actually start coming forward, I actually want to close by answering a question that I would have had if I was sitting under the sermon sort of five years ago. Are you telling me I have to tithe? And I know that's not the point of a message. I'm talking about having your heart being in the right place, but I actually want to answer that practical question. And look, I know all the oppositions because I've had them myself and I've had these conversations with people that yes, it was an Old Testament law. Yes, we are no longer under that law. We are under grace, 100% yes and amen. And there are some things I could say in argument against that, like the tithe was given before the law and it's actually a principle that is established well before that is given and Jesus actually affirms the tithe in the New Testament, but... That's not really that important because the main problem I have with, with that sort of argument is that every time I've had this conversation with someone about whether or not they have to tithe, they're always trying to get away with giving less than 10%. So sure, we're no longer under the law, we are under grace, so good news, you can give way more than 10%, go nuts. Uh, tithing is no longer just a maths problem. It is now something you have to work out between you and God. And so if you want a biblical answer from the New Testament about whether or not you should be doing things like giving and tithing, uh, there, there is one, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So there you go. That's your answer. Do I have to give? Do I have to tithe? Look, it doesn't have to be 10%, but everyone must give as he has decided in his heart. So that means it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict you and not mine, which makes this a whole lot easier and, and less awkward for me. And I would, I would just really encourage you, uh, during worship or when you go home tonight and you're sitting down at your bedside, have the chat with God. Am I giving God in the right way? Am I giving what you want me to give? Am I cheerful about this? Just make sure that when you do that, it is the Holy Spirit convicting you and not the world, not your flesh. See, C.S. Lewis once said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, on luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common to those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us at all, I should say they are probably too small. There ought to be things we should like to do, and yet we cannot because our charitable expenditures exclude them. So look, again, it's not my job to convict you. It's not my job to tell you what you need to be doing in response to this message, but I I, I do have a couple applications I think you could take away from this message. And I've prayed about this a lot and, and God's been convicting me this week. So I'm just gonna list off some applications I think you could get from this message. And if the Holy Spirit pings any of them for you, you can go away and deal with that with God. All right, so firstly, I think some of us need to start giving. We need to go to God and say, hey God, in response to the gospel, how much should I be giving back? And again, if you want a nice, easy number, 10% tithing, it is actually a good principle to start. And then you just trust God with that. But I also think, and this is gonna sound kind of weird, there there are some of us in this room that need to stop doing some of the things we are doing. Like, look, maybe you've been tithing faithfully since you were eight years old. And somewhere along the way, maybe you set up like an automatic withdrawal process and you don't even know how much money comes out of your bank account anymore. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with setting up an automatic system. Uh, but, But maybe some of us have been giving for so long that you don't even remember what that amount is anymore. And giving is no longer a sacrifice for you. It's no longer a blessing. It's no longer an offering back to God. It's just something you do. And it's in the background and you don't even notice it anymore. Maybe maybe you've been giving under compulsion. Like you've had this legalistic mindset drilled into you that you've got to give X amount every month. And and if that is you tonight, I would just say stop. Please. If you're giving for the wrong reasons, if you're giving under compulsion and out of legalism, you are giving in in the wrong way and you need to stop. Because God doesn't need your money. He he wants your heart and your priority. But if that is you don't just stop and then never give again, go away, have a chat with God and let Him dictate the terms of that agreement. But regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, if there's another response you have, I think all of us need to move to a life that is radically generous. Because the only way we can actually respond to the gospel is with generosity. That church, we do not give because we have to. We do not give because we can or or because we are supposed to. We give because God gave first. 
So look, I'm, I'm going to pray and um, we're going we're to finish in a song of worship. And I am going to, I know it's a message on tithing and generosity. I'm going to give an opportunity for people to give their life to Jesus. Because I declared the gospel, so I think I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't do that. So if you would just join me and close your eyes and bow your head and I'm going to pray. God, I thank you that you went first. That whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That you loved us so much that you gave. And you gave the most precious thing you could ever give. You gave the blood of your son, the blood of Jesus Christ to cover our sins. So Holy Spirit, I, I do just, I invite you in and I just pray you would come in and you would just unsettle us. You would come in and you would disturb us. You, you would come in and you would just, just start poking at our heart. And you, you just ask us those questions about why we're giving or why we're doing what we're doing and that you would stir us to a life that is radically generous. Again, not in response to this message, but in response to the gospel. That you would help us to be a people that are known for giving. And so again, with every eye closed and with every head bowed, if you tonight have maybe never had an opportunity to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never had an opportunity to say yes to that gift of generosity, I would just invite you to do so right now. That no one's looking, no one's gonna bring you out to the front. I just wanna pray for you. So if, if that is you tonight, would you just raise your hand? Okay, I'm, I'm just gonna pray, a, it's the prayer of confession. If you wanna come into agreement with that, you can just pray with me in your heart. Lord Jesus, we admit that we are all desperately broken. We need you. And we believe that when you died on the cross, that counted for us. And we confess you as our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you respond in praising and worshiping our God?